Well, it's a thrill to get back into our study of Scripture tonight, and uh, it's always a highlight of my week to study God's Word with you guys. You guys are hungry, uh, eager to hear uh, even my long sermons, so, well, at least some of you are eager to hear them. Uh, others, we know why you're here. You're here for the snacks, right? That's a joke. You can laugh. All right. Well, I know we've been studying First Peter, and... Uh, Jojo queued us up for First Peter tonight with songs, and um, I'm going to Shanghai it, all right? And I'll tell you more about that in a minute, but uh, we're working our way through First uh, Peter, and Peter's been teaching us to think of ourselves as elect exiles. You see that on the screen there. And he's been teaching us to learn like elect, to learn to live like elect exiles, there we go, uh, as we're in this world, and this concept, as we've been looking at it, is, is a tension, isn't it? Right? We're chosen by God. We're elect. We're His chosen people. We're the people that, he's, that He fiercely loves. And yet, yeah, we're still in exile. We're still, because of that choice, because He saved us, now we're, we're living in a world that we don't belong. We're waiting for our final in-gathering. Back to the land. The new land. The new earth. And we're awaiting that when the king returns. But in the meantime, we've got to navigate living here in a world that's hostile to us, in a world that is not our ultimate home, not yet at least. So Peter's been helping us and his original readers work those angles of living in a world that is not their home. And so far, he's helped us navigate our relationship with both the state, you remember that, with government, and then also with the workplace. That's where we were at last week. He's told us to submit to the governing authorities back in chapter 2, verse 13. And then he told the slaves that they should submit to their unbelieving masters in verse 18, which we also saw could be applied to the workplace and just enduring mistreatment here while we're slogging it out uh, in the 9 to 5. But then in the next passage, if you're not already there, you can go ahead and open uh, to 1 Peter 3. In the next passage... Peter's going to keep keep going, and he moves from instructing the slaves of unbelieving masters to the wives of unbelieving husbands. So he kind of keeps the theme going. And this instruction is again the same, that the wives should submit. So look with me in chapter 3. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not, let you, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hope in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, as you read this, you probably have a lot of questions, right? Uh, there's several things that kind of jump out there in that, that passage. And I'm sure that most of you ladies, because you grew up in an American subculture, uh, have some questions about this passage. And what does Peter mean? When he talks about wives submitting here, how can he tell the wives to submit to even harsh husbands, unbelieving husbands? Isn't that oppressive? 
Is Peter patriarchal? Have circumstances changed some 2,000 years later? Things like now that the gospel has permeated Western culture, we don't have the oppressive authoritarianism anymore like the Roman Empire, monarchies. They've given way to democracies, right? Slavery, too, has been abolished. Now people aren't required to submit to masters anymore. So shouldn't the same be true of marriage? Isn't all this submission talk an old and kind of antiquated idea? How can men and women be equal if women are told to submit to men? These are questions many Christians have, many of you might have, and we haven't even started in on what the culture is saying um, about these <laughs> these kind of issues. Right? So speaking of the wider culture, words like we just read, that paragraph, are anathema. You know what I'm talking about. And if you're like, what? What is it? What's he talking about? These, these are not that bad. Well, if you don't believe me, go down the road, go to Randolph College, stop at Walmart on the way, way there, grab yourself a poster board, and write out chapter 3, verse 1 on that poster board, and just walk around that campus. Right? See what happens. That was a joke. Okay? Don't actually do that. Teo. But words like that, words like what Peter just said, are often framed as toxic, patriarchal, abusive. And anybody who affirms statements like that, that we just read, are accused of propping up the patriarchy, right? Continuing to advance an unjust society, a society that's designed by men for men, and is designed to control and subjugate women. That's what the culture says about the passage that we just read tonight. But beyond the, the roles of husband and wife, there's widespread confusion about marriage itself in our culture today. What it is, why it exists. And it's not just confusion out there in the world. It's confusion also right here in our ministry. So you're thinking, confusion here? Like palace? Do a thought experiment. Okay? If I ask you right now, what is marriage? What is it? What would you say? Could you answer that question? Could you answer it with specific passages? What is it? Or how about this? How is marriage supposed to function according to Scripture? What's the role of a husband in marriage? What passage would you go to? What's the role of a wife in marriage? How would you frame that up? What passage would you go to? Or how about this? Are the roles in marriage a result of the fall? Why or why not? Well, how about this one? What is the purpose of marriage according to Scripture? Right? So we just kind of assume that we know all this about marriage. We have a good biblical view of marriage. One man, one woman. We kind of say those things, but do we really have deep convictions about Scripture, or from Scripture, about what marriage is? And it's doubly important because going through the singleness series, I've come to realize that most of you in here want to get married. All right? So, uh, in light of that, um, yeah, I didn't come to realize that. That was, a, that was a known incident. But, in light of that, you know, you got to know where you're going, right? Like, you got to know, like, if you just, do you just jump in a car and just kind of randomly drive? Maybe you do, from the Blue Ridge Parkway, but normally, no. You normally know where you're going when you get in the, when you get in the car. So, the same thing is true here. You're single now, you want to be married, well, you need to know more about that um, and what marriage involves. So, before we get into the specifics of this, this 
paragraph, which we're going to do next week, um, I want to pull back and take a message to just orient ourselves to the wider framework of marriage itself and help you get some answers to those questions I just posed to you. I want to look at what, what marriage is, how God designed it to work, and why he created it in the first place. Okay? We're going to look at some of those pieces tonight. This is just kind of a high-level overview. Um, we will get in the weeds a little bit, but uh, again, the purpose is a high-level overview. And once we do that, once we jump in there, we'll have the framework to understand both the commands to the wives here and the submission commands and why, and then also in verse 7, the commands to the husbands that he's going to give. Um, and we'll cover that in a few weeks. So we're, we're looking at marriage, we're calling it marriage, a biblical framework. Trying to help you guys frame this up. You can think of it as sort of, I'm going to give you some, some convictions, three convictions. You can think of it as kind of three pillars. We're going to build our, our, build our theology of marriage around. Looking at the framework for marriage, and then we're, we're going to just, real simple, three convictions about, about marriage, three pillars to really build our understanding of marriage around. And it's important to start just with the basic question, like, what is marriage? First, has to, This first conviction has to do with what marriage is, okay, the essence of it. And if you could, I just tried to boil it all down, right, and just kind of get to the bottom line. What, what is marriage? And we can say it like this, marriage is companionship, is a companionship relationship. It has to do, at its core, with this concept, biblical concept of companionship. This is the first word that should come to your mind when you think about marriage. What is that? What is, what is companionship? All, all we're talking about with companionship is friendship. Friendship. That's what marriage is. It is a friendship that's built on trust, fidelity. It's a committed friendship. And the point being is it's not just a way to have sex without feeling guilty about it. Okay? The core of what this thing is, it involves sexual intimacy, yes. For sure. But the core of it is a, a companionship relationship. On the flip side, it's not just a way to kind of get some get someone so that you feel good about yourself or you kind of arrive in the world and kind of feel like, okay, I've become an adult now that I'm married. This at its core is about this biblical concept of companionship. It's about cultivating a deep and profound friendship with your spouse. And a friendship where you know each other, you trust each other. You forgive each other, you serve each other, you love each other. And that's what companionship is, and that's what God intended when he created marriage. So it's not supposed to be a ball and chain. Okay? No matter what your coworkers say. Probably does feel like a ball and chain if you don't know Christ, uh, and you're just enslaved to your selfishness. And it's not just for procreation. As significant as that is, and as crucial as that is, but at its core, marriage is designed to be a companionship, a mutually edifying friendship. All right, so throughout the Old Testament, the biblical authors consistently describe marriage as this companionship. And the first example uh, I'm going to give you is from Proverbs 2.17, and it's intended to be what we might call a faithful companionship. A faithful companionship, meaning that it's you've covenanted, you've made promises, and the intent is to be faithful to that one partner, that one spouse. It's intended to be a faithful companionship. So in Proverbs 2.17, I'll have this up for you um, on the screen. You see here, it's kind of a negative example. And the adulteress here is described as forsaking the companion of her youth 
and forgetting the covenant of her God. So you see that on the, on the screen there, verse 16. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who, here she is, forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets this covenant of her God. So her spouse is called the companion of her youth. Just point that out. That's this word that we're talking about, this companionship word group. And it also is talked about as, for, as when she's abandoning the companion, she's forgetting this covenant with, that she made with God, these promises that she made before God to be faithful um, to her spouse. And so what this shows us is that Solomon viewed marriage fundamentally as a, a committed friendship, a committed companionship, a covenant, in fact, the one that the adulteress has broken. So we can see from this verse, just this is just one verse, and there are many, but the goal or the intent of the companionship relationship is that both involved would be committed and faithful to the end. All right? But this friendship isn't just a regular committed friendship. It's also a uniquely romantic friendship as well, a romantic companionship. This companionship is intended to be full of desire as trust is built and the friendship is deepened. Did you know an entire book of the Bible is devoted to describing the joys of sexual intimacy in marriage? So, Song of Solomon, in chapter 5 here, this is kind of one little excerpt we'll, we'll pick out. It has our term in it. And if you want, you can go ahead and turn there. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, is part of the, a wife that she's, she's describing her husband. And, but the author of this poem, this Song of All Songs, that's, what, that's the idea of the title, Song of Songs, this author is not shy about the God-glorifying side of physical attraction in marriage. Okay? At the end of this chapter, the end of chapter 5, verse 16, well, I, I get really, verses 10 through 16, the wife goes on this extended gush, this inspired gush about how physically attracted she is to her husband. She praises his complexion in verse 10. His head, his hair, verse 11. His eyes, verse 12. His cheeks and lip, verse 13. His arms and body, verse 14. His legs, general disposition, verse 15. His mouth, verse 16. Right? And she brings this gush to a close by saying he is altogether desirable, verse 16. And then notice what she calls him at the end of the verse. She says, got up here on the screen for you, this is my beloved and this is my what? My friend. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem. So this is a friendship, yes, but it's a romantic friendship. She's attracted to her husband, both spiritually and physically. And she's not shy about telling him that she is. And so if we had time, we would see that she's just as attracted to his character too. Not just a, it's not just a physical infatuation. She's attracted to his character. But suffice it to say here, this companionship that we're talking about, it's not cold, it's not dry, it's romantic. And so that's, if that's what marriage is, right, to go back to it here, this companionship relationship, it's faithful, it's romantic, why does it exist, right? That's an important question because sometimes people say the purpose of marriage is cultivating companionship. Well, okay, I could see that. That's partly true. But the companionship in marriage serves a greater purpose, right? Marriage exists to further God's mission. That's our second, whatever we're calling these things, convictions, pillars. Marriage exists 
The reason it exists is to further God's mission. Now, I feel like we've been talking about this in singleness. I feel like we've been talking about this in the millennial kingdom. <laughs> so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna belabor this. Um, but we can say it like this for our, our purposes. Marriage was created not as an end in itself. Okay? Not as an end in itself, but to fulfill something else, to fulfill God's mission. So flip all the way back to Genesis 1. You can piggyback off some of this other stuff we've been talking about. In the beginning, we've seen, before the fall, that the, the mission of God was to take dominion of the entire earth. Adam and Eve couldn't do it alone. The Lord tasked them to have lots of children to fill the earth and to help them carry out the mission. Genesis 1, 26, The Lord God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. That's 24, sorry. 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creature that creeps on the earth. So, He's going to make man, let them have dominion. That's the purpose. Then verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And it keeps going. So the purpose of man and woman, bringing them together, is for dominion. Marriage has a purpose. My only point. Now, we saw the fall ruptured that mission, didn't we? Sin and death were introduced, which made multiplication all the more significant. Right? Want, a, want the human race to live on? Now the death's involved? Uh, what do you got to do? You got to have children. And if a Messiah is going to be produced, that's going to reverse the curse, you have to have children. And God promised that that would be the case. So we've seen that that's crucial to the mission. We've also seen in our singleness series that now that Jesus has come and been raised from the dead, the mission continues, but it's now centered on making and maturing disciples through his church. I just made a huge jump there. Right from Genesis and procreation to the Great Commission. Um, not going to elaborate that. I'm going to I'm going to say go listen to the singleness series if you're new here and you're like, what is he talking about? I have no idea what he just did there. There's a connection. Trust me on that one. Um, but this doesn't leave marriage and parenting behind. Remember, because we're in the overlap of the ages. That concept. We're still in the old age while the new is in breaking. So marriage and parenting is still very important. But it puts this discipleship focus at the center of marriage and parenting, at the center of family life. And that impacts how you think about marriage and family, right? Because for starters, this means that marital companionship, think about the mission, is aimed at helping your spouse follow Jesus. Okay, this companionship relationship, as wonderful as it is, as joy-filled and as helpful and fulfilling, the goal of it is to help your spouse follow Christ better. And you see this clearly in Ephesians 5 and the instructions given to both husbands and wives. Husbands are called, as we're going to see, to lead and shepherd their wives toward Christ, to lay their lives down for her purity. Wives are encouraged to, are to encourage and respect their husbands too. And as you cultivate this rich biblical friendship with your spouse, your ultimate aim in the friendship is to make them a better follower of Christ through your humility, through your selflessness, through your patience, through your faithfulness, your friendship to your spouse will slowly result in greater sanctification and conformity to Christ. And greater sanctification means greater joy. Uh, it means greater glory to God. 
greater peace, and it means a greater friendship with your spouse. Each of you will, be, will, will mutually help the other increasingly become people who resemble the new creation, the very image of Christ himself. So companionship is aimed at helping your spouse follow Jesus better. And this mission also impacts how we think about kids, too. Bearing children is not an end in itself. Right? Parenting is aimed at helping your children know and follow Christ. We don't just try to have more kids for kids' sake. It's not an end in itself, even though it's still a vital necessity to keep making babies so that we perpetuate the human race until Christ comes back. But that's not even our ultimate goal as parents. We pray and labor for our own children to come to know the Messiah and to be part of his people as we wait for his return. We don't idolize our children, but we labor to ultimately launch out these renewed image bearers into a world of darkness to further spread the glory of Christ. In other words, our parenting is also focused on the mission of making disciples. And then as a result, our homes are transformed to our families look outward on the needs of others, in the church, in the community, We're not family-centric. Our marriages are thoroughly committed to God's church, the visible expression of His body in a, in a location. We seek to show hospitality. We seek to welcome others into the grace we've received so that more disciples are made and matured. And it's like our individual little homes become microcosms of God's kingdom, little cells of the church. Other people are welcomed in. They get to see what kingdom life is like. And this, this life in our home, not perfectly, but it's growing, and one day that kind of life is going to characterize the new creation. It's unlike anything that, that the world has to see. And we get to live that out in front of others in our closest and often most difficult human relationship. Right there in family life. So our homes are transformed. They, they look outward now on the needs of others and not just your biological family. And this is a, just on this note, okay, I'm going to, want you to keep your finger in Genesis, but, but flip over to 1 Timothy 5. This is so helpful to see this. This is kind of a backdoor way into this, this idea of, of the home life being open and outward. But I love this instruction. This is like Paul talking to Timothy about what kind of widows to support on the church role. And He's, they, have to, they have to have lived a certain kind of life, kind of a, a, a good life as a woman. And so you can kind of read this as, as the good life. This is, what, this is what Paul loved to see in an older widow. Verse 5, chapter 5, She is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she was self-indulgent as dead even while she lives. So we'll drop on down here. Let a widow be enrolled, that's on the support letter, verse 9, if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. Listen to these good works. She's brought up children, okay, pretty standard family life, shown hospitality, ah, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Like one of those, like caring for children is one of five things <laughs> that she did. Many times I talk to, to ladies and they, they think that uh, just my life is about my children. 
But here, what I'm, what I'm trying to show you is marriage exists, family exists to further God's mission. So there has to be an outward focus in our family life to others, to the body of Christ, in making disciples, washing the feet of the saints, in addition to rearing children and loving your husband well. So that's the mission of marriage. Marriage isn't ultimately for itself. And so young people can get infatuated with the thrill of marriage, rightly so. Like, it is sweet. That's not bad to be infatuated with that thrill. But you can't start thinking that marriage is all about you, or all about getting your needs met, or all about receiving love, or feeling secure, or being fulfilled and happy. It's about the mission of of God. Does marriage bring joy? Of course it does. Like, is marriage fulfilling? Amen. All the things, right? But its ultimate aim is fulfilling this mission. Alright, so that's second conviction here. Marriage exists to further God's mission. But then how? Right? So there is another question. How is this mission carried out? Or how, how is the marriage relationship intended to function? How does, it, how does it carry these things out? Number three, marriage is designed to function in a complementary way. And if you're thinking, then, man, we have never been on point number three, his last point, this early. I'm going to disappoint you, because this is like the majority of the message. Okay? Marriage is designed to function in a complementary way. And this is really going to set the stage for, for our entrance back into 1 Peter. So if you're back in Genesis, if you just jump back over there as you, after you finish writing, we'll be in Genesis 2. And Genesis 2 lays the foundation for how this marriage relationship is to function and the roles of the husband and wife in that marriage relationship. So I'm going I'm to tell you something that's going to blow your minds. Ready? When husband and wife come together, they are two very different people. You know that? They're not the same. Uh, they come together as a man and a woman, and they, they don't function in the same way. That was supposed to be a joke. Nobody laughed. Um, you're like, ha, 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 that's not what the culture says. <laughs> they don't, they, they're different. And yet they come together for God's mission in a very beautiful, complementary way. And you can think of it like two puzzle pieces that just fit together perfectly because that's how God designed it to, to function, right? How do we know this? How do we know what each member of this marriage relationship is supposed to do? Well, the way that Moses tells the story in Genesis 2 gives us a lot of information that may not be as readily apparent on the surface. I think once I point it out, you're going to see it, and you say, oh, wow, that's significant. And what we're going to see is that Adam is designed by God to lead the marriage. Okay? Adam is designed by God to lead the marriage, and Eve is designed by God to help him. Lead, help. Those are the roles. Okay? Let's get into it. Let's go to the text. We'll make a lot of observations. Then we'll pull it back and we'll synthesize it. All right, first, let's look at this role. Adam's role as leader. Adam's role as leader. Notice initially, chapter 2, that there is an order to the way that God creates. And specifically, he creates the man first. Okay? Creates the man first. So, you got this down, Adam's role as leader? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bury you guys with some observations, okay? I had to get a whole new slide for this. All right, Adam's created first. We were not told this in chapter 1. 
just said male and female, he created them. Kind of like, bam, day six, here they are. Chapter two, though, he spells out the order. And he says that Adam, were, Adam was created first. Look in verse five. It says, when the, no, there was no bush in the field, it was yet in the land, no small plant in the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. The mist was going up from the land, it was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord formed, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You're not going to see the woman formed until much later. Verse 18 and following. And the fact that God created Adam first signals that there is a created order and that he is to take the lead in this marriage relationship. Now, if that seems like I'm reading into the narrative too much for you, the Apostle Paul has the same interpretation in 1 Timothy 2. And it, and it grounds his the reason for why he doesn't permit a woman to teach in the church. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she should remain quiet. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Whoa. Paul put a lot of stock in the fact that Adam was created first. So we're just going to move on here. That's significant. Next observation here. Beyond this, God gives Adam the first instruction. God gives Adam the first instruction. Verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is significant because the woman has not been created yet. This clearly implies that Adam is responsible as the lead to faithfully transmit God's word to her. In chapter 2, we find out, well, excuse me, in chapter 3, we find out that Eve is actually aware of the command, which implies that Adam has communicated it to her. He's shepherded her by teaching her the command of God. All right, next. God brings the animals to Adam so that he might name them, and so his actual naming of the animals is a signal that Adam is in charge. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So, why is that significant? Well, in the previous chapter, God named everything. Right? He exercised his authority by creating thing, everything and then naming what he had just created. And in, in the ancient Near East, naming was a very clear sign of authority and leadership. So that would have been unmistakable in this context. Now, God's real point in having Adam name the animals was to heighten his anticipation for what was about to come next, right? The creation of his equal, somebody that was like him, uh, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, his glorious counterpart, the woman. But more on that in just a second, all right? So he names them, right? But then the animals aren't the only thing that Adam names. He also names his wife, which is another indication of his leadership role. Look in verse 23. 
Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam names his wife. And this isn't some kind of cold authority. Adam names her as he is singing to her and about her with wonder and amazement. He's amazed that she is like him. She is ontologically equal to him, we might say. She is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Peter is going to call our wives, when he talks about the husbands in verse 7, our co-heirs, the grace of life, that we need to treat with honor. Yeah, honor is all over this poem here, this, this lyric that he's singing. And he is finally relieved to find a companion, a fellow image bearer of God. And yet, he recognizes that she is different from him. So he names her, and she does not object to being named by her husband. She seems to know intuitively that Adam's authority over her is right, is good, and a noble thing. It's in her best interest, in other words, that Adam lead. And when he fails to lead, as we're going to see later, the world is plunged into ruin. Okay, So let's let's stop right there with Adam and his role for now, and let's look at the details about Eve. A few less, but still significant. You can see, you know, you can kind of infer from these things about Eve, but let's look specifically about Eve's role as helper. Eve's role as helper. Now, as we, as we wade into this, I've already, I've already talked about it here, but ontologically, men and women are equal. We know that back from chapter 1. Man is not the only one that's made in the image of God. So is the woman. And if we're skipping back to chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image, mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he's creating mankind, and they come gendered. Male and female. And the way the Hebrew text reads, it's as though the gendered diversity most fully reveals the image of God. In other words, God is best reflected in the diversity of the male and female gender. So we can say that already we know that a woman is not inferior to a man. They both equally share in imaging God. Another way of saying this is that they are equal in essence and purpose. or They are equal ontologically. Now that said, chapter 2 reveals how the husband and wife are to function together. So how, okay, how are these two equals to function in a relationship? And God specifically describes the woman as a helper fit for Adam. Okay, So if we're looking at evidences of Eve's helping role, she's described as a helper fit for him. Genesis 2.18. We just read it, but he says, The Lord, is, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now in Hebrew, this reads literally, a helper like his opposite, or a helper corresponding to him. In other words, she's very different from him, but she is just what he needs, a precious and sacred gift to be cherished and respected and esteemed for what she brings to the table to help him. Adam has strengths, but he also has limitations. His wife is created opposite to him, strong in his limitations, to assist him, to help, to work with him as his friend and companion so that they fulfill the mission of God in creation. 
But notice something very important. They don't co-lead and co-follow. Or it's not that one of them leads 50% of the time and the other leads the other 50% of the time. There is one appointed leader and one appointed helper in the marriage relationship. And so when it comes to this idea of submission, it's important to note that submission is not the technical role of the wife. You track, follow what I'm saying? The role is that she's the helper. Submission is sort of what she has to do to kind of align herself underneath his authority, right? The role is the help, the, the kind of glorious assistant that God created her to be to the man, to the husband. So assistance is the role, being the help to the man is the role, submission or voluntarily arranging herself under his authority is what's needed to carry out her role in this functional relationship. And this shows us that the wife's role isn't some passive role where she sits on the couch waiting on her husband to get home and serve her and make her life easier, right? As we're going to see, he should be aiming to do that as best he can, but it's actually her role to work hard at assisting him making his life easier, and enabling him to fulfill his tasks. That's what it means to be a helper. If we had time, we could go to Proverbs 31, or look back again at 1 Timothy 5, and we could see examples of some incredible women. And in Proverbs 31, everything that woman does is to enhance her husband's leadership. We'll probably talk about that at some point in the next few weeks, but Everything in that, that poem, the middle of that poem, is all about her husband receiving honor in the gate as he's ruling the land. That's where the kings would sit, in the gate. And that's the core of that poem, that's the middle of it, and everything that wife does is focused on enhancing her husband's leadership. She works hard inside and outside the home. She stewards incredible responsibilities. She's involved in meeting needs in the community. She is wise and judicious. She is praised and respected by her husband and children. This is the noblest of women performing the noblest of work in serving her husband. She is proactive in serving him, and his heart trusts fully in her. That's what Proverbs 31 says. A beautiful picture. Now, one last observation here. Notice that the text says that Eve was created differently than Adam. Eve was created differently than Adam. She was taken from his side, while Adam was taken directly from the dirt. Right, so the lady's got one up on us here. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. In contrast to man being formed from the ground. Now again, this detail might not seem significant to us, but when we fast forward to Paul, it was significant to him. He picks up on how Eve was made from Adam and not the other way around. And he says that Eve was... Eve was created for Adam and not the other way around, meaning she's his assistant. So look, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So again, it's just not saying anything different than what we've just said. But he's making, he's drawing some significance out of the fact of how Eve was created. It reinforces that for the wife, she is the, the helper to the husband. And so, according to Genesis 2, the husband is made to take the lead in the marriage, and his wife is his beautifully unique helper. 
These are incredibly important observations to make because some evangelical teachers will tell you that the roles within marriage are a result of the fall. You guys heard that? Is this pre or post fall? Pre fall. But they'll say that before the fall, men and women were created equal in essence, which I agree with, and also in function. They don't agree with. But they say the fall corrupted the function, and the fall introduced specific roles of leadership and assistance. But the reality, though, is that the fall did not introduce these roles. The fall corrupted, twisted them, perverted them, and opened us up for their abuses. Right? Speaking of the fall, what, what happens when the couple rebels actually helps us see how Adam and Eve failed to fulfill their roles in the marriage? In fact, we could say it more pointedly. It's precisely because the man and woman abdicated their roles in unbelief that the fall happened. All right, so let's look at this. The roles that are highlighted by the fall. We become painfully aware of what these roles are in, in this context of the fall. In Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 go together as sort of one narrative, one narrative of the garden. And in, the, in Genesis 2, Moses has laid out for us very, a very clear order in the world. Okay, first thing is God stands above everything. He gives clear revelation. Next, there's Adam who receives God's revelation. and Adam is tasked with leadership. Under him, there is Eve to help him. And then under both of them together is the creation. And they're supposed to reign over that creation. But in Genesis 3, the entire created order is flipped on its head. We're introduced to a creature, snake, who influences and reigns over the woman, who then influences and leads her husband, and then finally God shows up, last of all, to interrogate the couple as his word has been ignored. The shape of the narrative tells us something. It tells us that everything is upside down. The created order has been reversed. Death and judgment ensue. So notice, first of all, as we, we, we look at how the roles are confirmed by the fall, notice, first of all, that Eve failed to follow her husband's lead. A talking snake is in the garden and uh, catches our attention. Kind of weird. Um, most certainly caught Eve's attention. Not only is it weird that a snake, a creature, is talking, but he's actively contradicting the word of the living God and, by extension, the instruction that her husband just gave to her. So just think about that, right? Here's a snake that's contradicting the word of God. Just days earlier, none of these creatures even existed. The word of God brought them into their very being. And now a snake, not even an image bearer, is defying the words of the living God. So for Eve, alarms should have been ringing. If she was confused about what God actually said, or it was unclear what the snake was trying to do, she should have run to her husband to alert him to seek clarity, especially since it was different than what he had told her. But instead, she began to dialogue with a creature that she was supposed to rule. She began to be influenced by a creature that she was supposed to have dominion over. And she was taken captive by him. But Eve is not the, the only one who abdicated her role in this narrative. I remember thinking about this story a long time ago as a new Christian. I had never really read it that carefully. And I, would, I thought something like, Adam surely was not anywhere near this thing happening. Like, there's no way. 
And if he would have been, you know, he would have killed that snake. His wife probably told him to do something, you know, to convince him to eat it, you know, hit it from him. <laughs> it's not, that's not the case at all. That is not at all how this story unfolds. The snake is enticing Eve and as Adam's precious bride, the bride he just sang about, the bride he just named and was committed to lead. Adam was right there. He was right beside her in the garden. It says her husband who was with her. Moses held that little detail off until right there. She's engaging the snake. She's looking at the tree. She's grabbing it. Where is he? 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 Ta-da! You know, like, he was right there. He was watching as his wife fell for the lie. He failed to, and the fall ensued. I thought at one point that Adam was deceived too. I was like, yeah, Adam. And one time I said that, actually, in a, in a sermon. And a more informed older saint pulled me aside. And he said, I want you to go look up 1 Timothy 2.14. And I would, I was, he was like, on the Adam, Adam being deceived part. I was like, what? What's going on? So I thought, surely Adam... You know, surely Adam didn't know that his wife was falling for a lie. He was deceived too. Like, he fell for it too, right? I used to think that until the Apostle Paul corrected me. In 1 Timothy 2.14, he says explicitly that Adam was not deceived at this event, but that Eve was deceived. Look at this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. My jaw hit the floor when I read that. Think about that. Adam saw it clearly. He realized his bride was falling for a lie of the enemy of God, or of the of the enemy of the God who who just created them. Adam knew that she was about to transgress the command that would lead to their death. He knew. He wasn't deceived. So what happened? Adam failed to act. So young men, you, you have to see this. He failed to lead. He failed to stand up to deception. I don't know why. Jonathan Edwards said this is the greatest mystery in all the Bible. And I kind of agree with him. I don't know how this happened. <laughs> Unconfirmed righteousness, but they were created good. But he failed. He failed to exercise the God-given authority given to him, and he passively allowed his wife to act on her deception. And so men, you future husband, future leaders, let's just talk directly here for a second. You need to burn this event into your mind's eye. This cannot leave you because passivity plagues us. If it was that easy for a non-fallen Adam to yield passively to his wife and completely abdicate his leadership responsibility to the detriment of the entire universe, it most certainly would be terrible. tracking? You are plagued with the fear of man. You are fallen. You are sheepish about your leadership. And not only that, but the world is screaming at you not to lead. Even as I'm saying these things, you're probably thinking, ooh, this seems a little intense. Talking about a woman as the helper, like, the world's screaming at you. You can't lead. If you even try to do this, you're sexist. You're a misogynist. You're the enemy of women. And that's straight from hell. We got here in this mess because we refused to lead. Now the Lord has redeemed you and He's given you His Spirit. And so young men, resolve now today 
that you will not be passive. I know you don't know how to lead. That's okay. I'm not saying you've got to know how to lead right now. I'm saying you've got to resolve not to be passive. You're going to certainly fail at leadership over and over again. The best men do. But let this passage become convictional for you. Let it drive you to lead. Let it drive you to figure out what it means to lead in spite of all your weaknesses. In the face of the culture that's telling you not to lead, take the mantle. Let other men help you. It is what you were created for. Laying down your life for the well-being of their souls. But you know what else this means? It means you must be willing to be in the doghouse with your wife if that's what it takes to lead her away from deception. You're going to be called on to say a hard thing to her. You have to say it gently, in love, 100%, of course, but you've got to say it. Because there's going to come a time where you're going to see it. Eve wanted that fruit. She may have not understood. It would have cost Adam to intervene. She may have been angry at him. But that's leadership. That's what it means to be a man. Fearing Christ above everything else, including your wife. That's the only way you'll bless her. So don't abdicate your role. So here in the fall, it's clear both Adam and Eve are functioning outside their roles, but God doesn't let them continue doing that. Notice who he addresses first. Adam's confronted first, not Eve. When the Lord comes to investigate, he addresses the man first. Why? Because he's in charge. The Lord comes knocking. He says, I want to see the husband. He's fundamentally responsible for this event. And this is another evidence that Adam is the leader. Look in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He's the leader. So when the Lord comes knocking, he asks for Adam, and Adam does the blame game again trying to dig himself out of a hole and uh, not working. But regardless, the Lord's interaction with Adam and confronting him first is another indication that Adam is in charge. And finally, last observation, notice again that what God says to Adam when he's doling out judgments for their disobedience in verse 17. What's the first reason God gives for cursing the ground? And shockingly, it's not that he ate the apple. I mean, that's definitely the second reason. But what's the first in verse 17? Because you have what? Listen to the voice of your wife. Adam is judged for yielding to Eve's leadership. That's incredible. That's, that's as though God is saying, because you did not step in and lead as I created you to do. The fact that God said that to him shows that he was the leader and he should have led. Now, I'm thinking, my goodness, that's a lot of observations. Why did I drag you through all that? Because I want you ladies and men to see both the beauty of God's created design in marriage and to beware of forsaking. Not only is the world screaming at you the opposite of what these opening chapters of Genesis says, but, but even, quote-unquote, evangelism or evangelicalism is too. There are many in the evangelical church that teach something called egalitarianism. This position, just to put it simply, 
teaches that not only are men and women equal ontologically, but they are equal in function. And they argue, like we said a minute ago, that those role distinctions result from the fall. And then because we're new creatures in Christ, because there's no longer male and female in Christ anymore, according to Galatians, there are no longer any gender roles. Women aren't restrained anymore by male patriarchy. They are free to lead in the home and in the church. And this teaching is dangerous at best and is highly destructive at worst. It confuses the God-ordained roles and flatlines what God has designed as a beautifully diverse friendship, a complementary friendship, as we've been calling it. Now, you might not say that you're egalitarian, but uh, I, do, I do premarital counseling, and um, you are uh, in lots of ways. Okay, It's pretty rare that couples or counseling don't, they haven't imbibed some of this at some level. And here's often what I see, and I was the same way. Men are sheepish, right, when they, when they come up against the Bible's vision of servant leadership, what it means to actually lead and shepherd their wife. They're sheepish about it. They're just like, ah, you know. Leading means they have to set the trajectory. They have to have a plan. They have to make good decisions that please Christ. It means the buck stops with them. They're in charge, whether they want to be or not. They can't slouch off. They can't evade responsibility. They can't put that on their wife's shoulders. They've got to be willing to lead their family in following Christ and set the pace in discipleship in their home. And that's hard. It's humiliating because we fail often over and over and over again. We're cast ourselves back on the mercy of God. We've got to get back up and try it again. But that's our role. And the women are also shocked when I tell them that they don't get to call the shots if they're trying to get married. He calls the shots in the home. It's not 50-50. Nobody's forcing these young ladies to get married. I'm not saying, I'll tell them that. Like, nobody's forcing you to get married. If you get married, this is what you're signing up for. You're voluntarily choosing wifehood, and God calls you to bring yourself under your husband in everything, to submit fully to the vision of your husband. The young ladies are choosing to exist to best assist his needs and to best fulfill what God has called him to. Which means, young ladies, you can't come with your list of demands. You can't try to manipulate him to get your way and lead him from behind. Can you express yourself honestly and respectfully? Of course you can. Of course you can. There's lots. Love that. We talk about what submission is not in, in a, you know, sometime. Next week, maybe. I haven't written that message yet, so I don't want to promise you anything I'm not going to give you. But of course you talk. Good husbands want to take your perspective fully into account. His husband trusts, his heart trusts fully in her. So what an idiot not to seek the counsel of his wife. But you're not in charge. The husband is in charge. And in the end, young ladies that get married must come under his leadership and assistance. And this is radical in our day, isn't it? But if both husband and wife yield to the good design of God, if they learn to walk in their respective roles as Christ would have them, it is absolutely transforming. It is so life-giving. It is so full of joy and full of fruit to the glory of God. And we'll talk about that more later, but I think that's enough for tonight. I've given you, like, you're beyond saturation point, okay? Uh, 
But I want you to have this framework of marriage before we jump into 1 Peter, because it's going to help you make sense, if you're kind of new to the submission idea, it's going to help, help you make sense of this, what he's saying to both wives and husbands in this passage. And I'm sure this raises more questions for you. I'm happy to field those questions. We're going to elaborate more on these things over the next few weeks as we get into this, these instructions here. But for now, just consider your overall framework of marriage. Is this how you view it? If not, what needs to change in how you think through these things? What needs to come in alignment to the Word of God? Bring that to the Lord. Bring that to a faithful friend tonight who can help get that in alignment. If you're offended, if you're like, ah, you know, like let's, let's talk through that. Um, happy to chat. All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for a clear word. We're grateful for the beauty of the marriage relationship and just how you bless it and produce fruit in it. And Lord, we pray um, that you would use your, your, your true and clear word to help us see the good design of marriage and to walk faithfully in it if, if that's what you give these students. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.